Thank you, everyone, for coming to our last panel of the day, where we'll be dealing with platform efforts to tackle abuse and extremism on social media and the effect of 2.30 on these, these platform efforts. Um, joining me on stage uh, to my left is Jennifer Huddleston, uh, the Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum. She's standing in today for Jeff Kossoff, who is unfortunately feeling ill this morning and responsibly decided to refrain from attending. <laughs> Jennifer's research focuses on the intersection of emerging technology and law. Her work has appeared in a wide range of outlets, including USA Today, the Chicago Tribune, Business Insider, Slate, and The Hill. Jennifer has appeared on media outlets, including CNBC and Fox Business, to discuss technology-related issues. She's also testified before Congress and state legislators, and has been a regular panelist on issues such as transportation, innovation, data privacy, and liability for content on online platforms. Thank you very much for last minute agreeing to join us today. To my left is Kathy Gellis. Uh, Kathy is a lawyer specializing in the convergence of technology and civil liberties. Her practice includes advocacy and counsel related to copyright and intellectual property, free speech, privacy, and other innovation policy matters affecting technology use and development with a particular focus on how these issues interact with internet platforms and how the law affecting platforms also affects the public. Prior to becoming a lawyer, Kathy worked as a webmaster in Silicon Valley and France She's a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley, where she double majored in sociology and mass communication, and earned a JD at Boston University with a concentration in intellectual property. Finally, we have Alan Butler, general counsel at the Electronic Privacy Information Center. In that capacity, he manages EPIC's litigation, including the amicus program, and files briefs in emerging privacy and civil liberties cases before the US Supreme Court. Mr. Butler is also chair of the Privacy and Information Protection Committee of the ABA Section on Civil Rights and Social Justice. He is co-author of the most recent edition of Communications Law and Policy. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And to kick things off, let's start with Jennifer. How does Section 230 constrain or provide for platform action designed to tackle abuse and extremism? Here we're thinking about misuses of platforms and social media which have antisocial or illegal consequences, particularly consequences off-platform in the real world. These are some of the focal points of moderation, what moderators are most concerned about policing on platforms. However, this activity is provided for essentially by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Right, and this was one of the main elements of the creation of Section 230. And I have big shoes to fill in stepping in for Jeff Kossoff on this panel, who literally wrote the book on Section 230 that's available out in the hallway if you uh, still haven't read or purchased it. Um, when we think about the world in which Section 230 was being written by then representatives Cox and Wyden, there were two key court cases that had come to two very dramatically different decisions. And they had to do with whether or not you were liable if you moderated at all of, regarding the con online content. And this is the Prodigy decision and the CompuServe decision. And so looking at these kind of conflicts, the goal of Section 230 was to, in some ways, get rid of this moderator's dilemma of the situation where you had an incentive not to moderate at all, lest you be liable, and then you just left everything up. Or you had the opposite incentive, where you were constantly moderating, where you were constantly looking for things that could possibly be offensive, or, thing, or any content that anyone flagged as potentially problematic, you were going to take down out of an over-concern of liability. So the idea of, behind Section 230 was that you allowed a large range of different content moderation strategies. And we've heard about some of those throughout the other panels today. And so there was this attempt to kind of solve this dilemma by providing some protection for those content moderation decisions that may need to be made so that you could have different platforms arriving at different decisions for content and also not have a concern about potential liability for content that was taken down 
and not have a concern that everything was just going to be this horrible place where anything goes um, and you would see a lot of content that your average consumer wouldn't want to be exposed to. Thank you. Um, when we're thinking about the sorts of content which, which is seen as harmful, which is moderated and taken down, some of it might be legal, but platforms don't want it out there. Their users may have a problem with it. Well, other content is outright illegal, or the ways in which people use platforms will be strictly for illegal ends. Um, Alan, recently you filed an amicus brief in a case, uh, Herrick v. Grindr, in which someone was using Grindr, a dating app for gay men, um, to stalk and harass uh, their ex-boyfriend. Could you tell us a little bit about that case and potentially how CDA 230 comes into play there? Sure. Um, so to give some background, uh, in the Grindr case, an individual in New York, uh, Mr. Herrick, uh, had been using the Grinder app in the past, but but had stopped doing so uh, when he was in a relationship uh, in about 2015. But when that relationship ended in 2016, uh, he was subject to a long string of harassment by his ex, including harassment that involved uh, repeated use of the Grinder app. So essentially, his ex created impersonating profiles of him with his personal information, image, his location in the Grinder app, and essentially solicited other individuals to harass him in person, uh, basically making up stories about uh, his interest in, in violent sexual encounters um, and, and various other tactics to basically deploy other people to physically stalk him, threaten him at his home, his place of business. And so this was really, you know, I think this is really very different from the type of content uh, moderation issue that was going on in the 90s when Section 230 was developed. I mean, this is a situation where a platform is being used essentially as a tool uh, to facilitate offline uh, abuse and harassment. Uh, and so it's it, ultimately, so we filed a brief, as you mentioned, uh, in the Second Circuit. Ultimately, the Second Circuit determined uh, that none of the kind of four of the state claims that, that Mr. Herrick had brought against Grindr, which were negligence, uh, product liability, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and negligent infliction of emotional distress, uh, could be sustained because Section 230 basically provided blanket immunity for all actions that Grindr took as a platform, um, which we can get into, but I, I don't think that's the re really the right way to understand 230. Well, in, in a way, we usually think of 230 as applying to speech claims. Uh, but in this case, while these claims were phrased as and understood by the plaintiffs as product liability claims, the court understood them differently. And Kathy, you've dealt with a couple cases in this vein. Yeah, ultimately, like even in the Herrick v. Grinder case, the court recognized that this was, there was really no question that Section 230 applied because this was user-generated speech. The creation of the bad profiles and the bad advertisements that, I mean, these were terrible things that this person had done, but this was their speech. It was their speech that was wrongful and leading to these terrible consequences. Um, when we look at some of these other cases where the courts have maybe had some difficulty in recognizing Section 230's applicability, they're having a harder time recognizing that there is also a speech element. I'm thinking in particular with um, the HomeAway uh, case versus the city of Santa Monica, which is similar to a case that Airbnb had with the city of San Francisco. They want to be able to impose regulation on um, user postings. Now that's fine in theory to the extent that it reaches the user. What is legal for a user to advertise within that local jurisdiction? But they are trying to put their lever, the power against the users by putting regulatory pressure on the platforms to say, We've decided which posts are legal and which posts aren't, and you need to police them for us. And if you don't police it correctly, then we're going to make you liable for letting an illegal ad stay up. But an illegal ad is still an ad. It's user speech. It may be speech that fits one type of message for, the, for that particular platform of, you know, instead of Twitter where you can say anything, it's Airbnb where you can pretty much only say, I have a home to rent. Um, but that's still speech. Somebody, when making that post, is saying, I have a home to rent. And if you impose liability on the platforms for letting the wrong 
I have a home re to rent speech remain up, now you've sort of missed the point of Section 230, which is supposed to provide, um, to shield the platforms for liability for crappy, wrongful, illegal things that their users have done. It's imposing the liability in defiance of that law. Well, and if I could just jump in really quick, I think it's really important when we're having these conversations to note that Section 230 is about the platforms and their liability, not the user themselves. So there's nothing that stops you from suing the user who did the defamatory action. There's nothing that stops the police from going to arrest the, the user on Grindr who was sending people to that if, they, if it's violating a criminal law and whatnot, that you're still, it's about the platform that's hosting the content, not the user and their liability. And it's an important distinction to make that, you know, I consider myself a defender of Section 230 and for others like, you know, making the same arguments that I'm making, it's not to say that we're cheering for bad stuff on the internet. Like, bad stuff, there, it may be entirely appropriate to have law that punishes the bad stuff. We just wanna make the people directly responsible for the bad stuff, responsible for it, and not the intermediaries who are also, to the extent that they facilitate it, are also facilitating an awful lot of good stuff. Because the fear is if they have to be, if they are liable for the bad stuff, they're not going to be free to allow the good stuff, and that would come at a huge cost for you know, everybody who is using the internet constructively. But I think it's also important you know, um, to, to keep in mind, um, Sorry, I just lost my train of thought here. I was going to respond to one thing. I started responding to another thing. Um, but uh, as to the, the issue of going after the individual, um, in, if you take the Herrick case as an example, I think we have to be real about how these platforms work. I mean, of course, Mr. Herrick went after uh, the individual who was harassing him. He filed you know, 13 claims with the police. He got a restraining order. Uh, but it does nothing, right? I mean, the, these platforms, in this case of Grindr, facilitates someone remotely basically leveraging third parties to harass you, which a restraining order can't stop. And so, you know, it really is a situation where it's not like the type of circumstances that we've seen in the past. It's not like someone just posting on a bulletin board. I mean, maybe the closest thing is, you know, the underlying facts of the Zarin case where an individual's phone number was posted um, with a, a post that he claims was fake associated with the Oklahoma City bombing, and then he was, basically his phone was subject to all these harassing calls. Someone had read it out on the radio as exactly. well. Um, but in that case, again, but in that case he was bringing defamation claims, which are so like squarely in the boundaries of 230 because they concern a publisher and a speaker. Um, whereas here the claims had nothing to do with, the, you know, nothing in the, the torts of, of negligence or of emotional distress or product liability involves speaking or publishing um, in, in the torts themselves. Obviously, the, the conduct we're looking at is, is the effect of these particular words or these particular information that was shared. But uh, I do think it, it creates a, a bit of a difference in how you analyze 230. Although if the question is, the restraining order couldn't do anything, it suggests that we need to put more attention into what our restraining orders can do. If, if the only thing that was going to protect um, Mr. Herrick from this terrible behavior was the platform. That suggests that we have a failure of law in other places, not necessarily Section 230. Um, the problem when we put all the weight on Section 230 and blame it for absolutely everything wrongful that happens is we lose it to facilitate all of the stuff that's not terrible. Um, and even if we start looking more broadly about, um, you know, maybe Grinder should have done more, the question is also, Perhaps, but at what cost? If we're imposing liability because, but for Grinder being there, being the platform, nothing bad would have happened. But, but for Grinder being there and facilitating the successful relationships to the extent that people have used them and enjoy using the service, they don't get to be there for that either. Um, that but for analysis needs to, I think, bend in favor of shielding the platform if we want to make sure that platforms can exist at all. I think a lot gets put on the issue of liability in the 230 debates, and I think one thing that's interesting about the Grinder case is it's an example where, you know, to, to in a sense solve the problem in that individual case, you don't need liability. All you need is to provide a mechanism for Mr. Herrick to have that imposter uh, profile taken down, uh, essentially an injunctive remedy. And I don't really see why uh, an injunctive remedy in that context that's, that's gone through a judicial review process would pr prohibit any of these platforms from existing. 
that wasn't the only remedy requested, no, as, as I remember. And there were a couple other changes to the platform, which could be seen on one hand as enhancing safety, particularly right. in, in Herrick's context. But if applied elsewhere in the world, um, might, might have different implications. There were suggestions that Grindr ought to know its customers, require their, them to use their real name and, say, show a government-issued ID. But there are some trade-offs in that, perhaps. Um, what, what do you think those are? Or I, I think there are trade-offs. Um, that the more we think through, where it's really easy to see a problem and really easy to conjure up what appears at first glance to be a fix to the problem. It's really hard to think through the full range of consequences of that fix, um, which is why people like me tend to push back on some of these recommendations, because it doesn't scale well out of solving this particular problem. When you deal with the sheer amount of volume that even the smallest platforms end up dealing with, it's going to break down. It's going to catch false positives. It's going to catch a lot of false positives. It's going to co-opt resources that might be better deployed to other forms of moderation that might even be more effective and community protective. Um, that's the problem. In any particular court case, we're dealing with something terrible has happened, and we're looking for a judicial remedy to fix the terrible thing that happened. And courts get very focused on that, and it's very easy for them to be tempted to say, all right, if Section 230 is the only thing standing in the way of remunerating, you know, providing redress for, for this problem, let me get Section 230 out of the way. But then you get it out of the way, and then it is no longer there doing any of the work that it needs to do. Um, and getting back to your point about the injunctive remedy, that too is one of the things that doesn't scale very well. Section 230 legally operates to preclude the injunctive relief against the platform because of the way it functions as an, in, as an, uh, an, an immunity. But that's not a bug, that's a feature. There's reasons why we, that's a good thing because when you can force the platforms to take things down, now you've opened up where, um, and I know there was the point earlier about not throwing around this word censorship when it's private actor based, but now you're starting to look at censorship from a government standpoint um, because a judicial court mandating behavior, um, you run into an awful lot of problems with due process, are they getting it right, um, and a lot of other free speech concerns, um, even to the extent that it targets wrongful truly wrongful behavior, you have a lot of problems at that scale. And so having the immunity function more broadly to say, no, you don't get to bring the platform into court to impose, to make extract any form of remedy from the monetary or injunctive relief. Um, because if we do that, we just tempt all sorts of trouble where all of a sudden 230 isn't working at all. Jennifer, you. Oh, I, just say, I, I think to, in some ways, echo something that was said earlier. There, not only are the trade-offs in terms of the potential impact on other types of speech, on the potential impact on the trade-offs about something that seems like, a, in a lot of cases, a really good, really easy idea, like real name culture and location, and then you think of a country where it, there still may be laws that prohibit a certain type of behavior that we accept in the US, um, and those same facts could be used against a person. At the same time, there's the question of what if the, it's one thing to look at having the government involved when it's a government you like or a policy or someone in control that you like. What about when it's the other side? And we should be cautious about giving government actors tools that we would not be okay with the opposite philosophy, having those same tools for regulation. So what did the situation look like before 2.30. You recently wrote a piece um, along with Brent Skorup arguing that we were in some ways moving towards a 2.30-esque rule. Um, in light of that, how might have a case like Herrick come down before the advent of 2.30 if it were a classified ad placed in a newspaper or something? So it's interesting because a lot of times what we hear is that Section 2.30 is this carve-out big gift to the tech companies as, as if it came down from heaven and created this brand new theory of liability exemption. But in our research, uh, what Brent Scorp and I found is that there actually were some precedents that would lend themselves to a 230-like um, type of protection, whether it was the wire service defense or conduit liability or looking at cases involving 
libraries and the contents of their books or booksellers and the contents of their books, what the expectations were for knowing everything that was published. When it comes to classified ads, it's kind of interesting because, of course, there are laws that you can hold a newspaper liable for when it comes to classified ads, things that violate the Fair Housing Act, for example. Um, on the other hand, there are certain things that I don't think many of us, and, and unfortunately, I don't know off the top of my head a particular case I can point to, but if you were to, say, get a bad saxophone out of the local newspaper ad, the idea of being able to sue the newspaper because they didn't vest that the, that, that the saxophone worked perfectly, I don't think is a, a reasonable expectation. So I, I think the, the, the answer to your question is there's general rules of secondary liability about when do we hold somebody responsible for somebody else's behavior. Um, and the answer always was not always. Um, sometimes you could hold the person secondarily liable, and sometimes the law just didn't like that. It doesn't it violates our notion of fair play and things like that. The problem is, is litigating is really, really expensive. So even if the, the platform who might get sued in a world without Section 230 might ultimately win and be you know, exonerated and not have, be liable for the crappy thing somebody else did, um, that could be game over for the company to before they, potentially bankrupting them before they can even get to that decision. And especially if you're dealing with um, potential complaints at scale, you know, it's, you know, four digits to call up your lawyer and get some good advice. It's five digits if you start filing pleadings and six or seven if you're getting into full-blown litigation and heaven forbid a judgment. So Section 230 is to sit there to say, we would like the internet to exist. We want to make it safe for people to innovate interesting services and, you know, be available for people. And so we need to make sure that we don't extract this crippling toll as they innovate their way onto um, providing us with all these things because of like issues that may not even be meritorious in the end. No. Not only might it be game over for an existing company, but then it also can create a new barrier to entry for that next idea. It makes it harder for that next kid with an idea in a garage of creating some service that's going to host user-generated content or of someone trying to decide whether or not to have comments on their blog or on their local newspaper website to make that decision when you know that that's going to open you up to new liability if someone uses it for a purpose that you never intended them to. Now, not all unintended purposes are necessarily harmful. People find their own often um, outside-the-box uses for things. In the past week, we've seen Chinese students assigned homework um, using an app, mass downrating the app to one star, getting it it kicked off the App Store. But again, that can speak to the unintended consequences of even an App Store's providing a rating function. No one intended for that to be used by young people to dodge their homework, and yet, in practice, that's how it's shaken out. However, Section 230's protections are not um, totalizing. Um, it includes exemptions for federal criminal law. If someone has created a platform that itself is doing something illegal. Um, and also for copyright law. And thinking, Alan, of your, your um, impersonation case, do you think there's any application for copyright law here? Um, say, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's a very good point that, you know, to flag the fact that it, there are exceptions built into the statute itself, one. Two, I think when we talk about applying the statute in current or hypothetical cases, the obviously courts have to interpret what the statute says and then interpret what the statute actually says based on what they understand Congress intended uh, with those words. And so kind of on two separate points, taking the second first, I think that you know it's it's great to talk about uh, the value of immunity to providers. I get it. It's valuable. Immunity is great. People love immunity. The statute doesn't say immunity. The statute focuses on whether those companies can be held liable as a publisher or speaker, and those are terms of art. And so I think when we look at the application of 230 in a particular case, we have to look and see, you know, are they being held liable as a publisher or a speaker? And even if they are, to your point, there are exceptions. Uh, we make exceptions for copyright violations, and in some cases, uh, that can be a tool, and especially in cases, you know, potentially in the imposter profile cases, 
uh, in some cases involving non-consensual pornography, which is a whole other category of harassment and abuse. But I think, you know, taking a kind of a step to the side the minute and putting on a policy hat, I think we have to think about in 2020 when we're looking at 230 and there's serious conversations happening in Congress about um, how can it be sort of updated or amended uh, to, to deal with some of the issues we're seeing today, what is the logic of person A being able to successfully block or take down non-consensual pornography because they took the picture, but person B not being able to take down non-consensual pornography because they didn't take the picture? Uh, agreeing f as a basis of argument that, that it definitely is non-consensual pornography in those two cases, just because one person has a copyright claim, they can take it down. I, I don't see why how that distinction at all so, uh, sort of solves the parade of horribles of, oh, the platforms are just going to get sued to death. Well, they can get sued to death for copyright violations. So I'm not really sure then if the law is actually succeeding what it purportedly intends to do. I think that tends to cut against the change 230 argument because we look at what happens in the copyright space where um, the point being is section 230 applied very broadly, um, but it carved out if the thing that was wrong with the user content is it violated federal criminal law, Section 230 would provide no protection. Um, until recently, that generally tended to be matters of like child porn and things like that, and so the platforms would have to muster their resources to make sure that they weren't being used for those purposes. Uh, but it tended to be a very focused, this is what we're going to spend some resources on, uh, as opposed to absolutely everything that they could possibly police for. The second thing was, um, if the thing wrong with the content was it violated, well, it's phrased more vaguely than this, but basically if the thing that was wrong with it violated an intellectual property right. And generally, as we know it, this tends to be, it potentially violates a copyright. Now, there is still some protection for platforms. They fall under, we've got the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. But while I called Section 230 an immunity, because that's how it functions, um, the DMCA is a safe harbor, uh, which makes it a lot more conditional that um, a platform, if they want to be protected and not be liable for their users' potential infringement, has to jump through a whole lot of hoops. It's very conditional. And like, even if you just take these two statutes and put them next to each other, Section 230 is a very easy to read statute. You don't need a law degree to read Section 230 and basically know how it's working. Um, with the DMCA, good luck with it. Even if you've got the JD, good luck with it. Um, it uh, even courts get caught up and wrong and make mistakes because it's a very, very, very difficult uh, statute to parse. And the upshot to that is it means that the protection of platforms is a lot more ambiguous. And as a result, platforms tend to need to be very frightened about what content they leave up on their sites. Because if there's the potential chance that they might be held liable for it, they better take it down. And so this is why when we look at the internet, we sometimes see Swiss cheese of um, this content is no longer available thanks to a copyright claim. And it may be something that was not infringing at all, um, but they got to take down notice and they basically, you know, even assuming they can police the screen, the sheer volume of takedown notices they get to figure out, even if they could figure out which ones are valid and not, they probably don't have the resources to handle those numbers. They probably aren't going to know. Um, and any decision is going to involve a significant amount of risk if in the face of a takedown notice that may or may not be a valid takedown notice, they leave it up anyway. And this is why things go down. This is why content is missing that is lawful and beneficial and why bad actors can game the DMCA because they can force content down by using that pressure, the Achilles heel, the fear of liability, and use that against a platform to cause the platform to be their agent, essentially, of privately enforced censorship. This isn't a good thing. This is exhibit A for why we should not touch Section 230, because to the extent that it does apply clearly and cleanly, that's a good thing because we see what happens if it doesn't apply and they don't have the protection. And I think there's something interesting there, too, of we talk a lot about Section 230 at scale and the volume of content, but there's also this other question of Section 230 with new platforms, with innovative platforms, and with some platforms that are somewhere in the middle. So we've heard today about things like Wikipedia, um, HomeAway, or Airbnb, when you think about that content that's, again, user-generated content, but is much different than a social networking site or a search engine site in what they may be dealing with. But still, in a world without Section 230, have to have additional concerns about 
what do we do now if somebody misuses our platform, if somebody misrepresents what they're doing, if someone uses our platform for something other than its intended purpose to do something um, that we could now be liable for. Well, Kathy, you recently worked on a case involving Arms List, a sort mm -hmm. of classified ad site for firearms. And there, the site isn't, say, as in uh, HomeAway or Oberdorf, processing transactions or shipping goods, but instead people are just posting adverts to it and then uh, maybe meeting up to uh, conduct a transaction or going to an FFL. Um, how, how were they protected by 230 in this? And how might the speech featured in Arms List differ from other commercial speech? Well, it essentially goes back to that example I gave that um, you know online classifieds are basically speech that says, I have something to sell. In this case, the I have something to sell is I have a firearm to sell. Um, what this lawsuit was is, well, this case was terrible. Let's talk about what was terrible about it, which is that somebody who never should have owned a gun um, used the site to find somebody selling a gun, bought the gun in the parking lot of a McDonald's. So let's point out that McDonald's did not get sued, even though it was their parking lot that actually got used for this transaction. But they bought the gun, and then they went and they shot uh, uh, their ex-wife ex and I think the, the other people and stuff. So this was terrible. This is a person who never should have bought the gun because they were intending to use it against other people. Um, the interesting thing is it was actually a perfectly legal gun sale uh, based on the way Wisconsin gun laws worked. There but for the fact that one party was a felon who couldn't Well, it was legal. Well, so let's put a pin in that for a second. So the lawsuit was from you know the estate and the survivors of how dare you have any role in facilitating that this terrible thing could happen. You designed your website knowing that people are gonna buy guns and you didn't have any basis to screen whether they should be having them or not. Um, and that seems to, let's accept that that is basically the case with, with arms list. Um, the, the lower court said, nope, section 230, doesn't do it. And then the appeals court said, wait a minute, we just don't like that result. Um, surely you could have done more. Uh, you didn't design your site well enough to do this policing. Um, so they reinstated the, the, the lawsuit. Um, and then there was a cert petition to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which took up the case and said, no, this is clearly falling under Section 230 because Section 230 um, does not want platforms to be directed by government entities essentially to design their sites in any particular way. That's, that's not something the statute allows and that's not good policy itself either. Um, but when I talk about like we were talking before about like you know if the restraining order didn't work, let's look at why the restraining order was not sufficient to stop this harm. The same thing is, is true with arms list. And it, you know I wonder if it's legal to shout gun control in a Cato theater, but um, this is kind of what we're looking at. That was a legal gun sale. Um, and maybe that gun sale should not have been legal. And then we might be looking at different things about who else might be liable, including the potential seller of the gun. Um, we, bad things have happened. And we don't want bad things to happen. But we need to look very carefully at where to put the regulatory pressure to stop the bad things. Um, and we just keep kind of taking all these shortcuts and blaming it on the platforms. And particularly given that the arms list thing wasn't actually illegal, it was something that Wisconsin gun law invited, um, I think that's a mistake. And I think the Supreme Court in Wisconsin was correct to sort of go back to first principles and say, we don't get to muck with this law because it'll muck up much more than just addressing this case. So in, in both Herrick and Arms List, we saw litigation designed to essentially shift platforms in perhaps small but important ways in order to render them safer or uh, less vulnerable to abuse. Um, why are platforms increasingly the sort of first stop shop for both law enforcement and government demands um, and this user litigation as uh, the party that ought to change their conduct um, rather than say looking to a shift in law or um, the behavior of other third parties. I mean, this is all new to us. We, you, the Section 230 is 20 years old, but um, things have kind of you know, increasingly picked up speed in terms of how many people are online and all the different things they can use it, uh, online services for. Um, 
We don't really know how to play it, how this plays out. We don't know what it's like to have 7 billion people have the ability to talk to each other. And we're not entirely using this power universally as constructively as maybe would be ideal. Um, there's a lot of growing pains, and it's very easy to um, get very frustrated, to get very scared, and look at for the easy targets. Platforms are presumed to have a lot more resources that you know can provide redress to people who've been hurt than the people who actually did the, the hurting. Um, so it can be very tempting to address uh, lawsuits towards those platforms. Um, and it can be very tempting on a policy level to say, wait a minute, bad stuff is happening on the internet. Section 230 facilitates the internet, so therefore Section 230 is bad. And what I counsel is that we need to look more broadly. We need to look at if there's bad things, if there's bad externalities, I think we have to be much more strategically focused on what those bad things are and what better targets them, both on a specific level of like, is it the restraining order and better gun control or things like that? And also in terms of if we think the platforms are not optimally incentivized to do the best they can to protect us, let's make sure they have more incentives and let's look at the things that are distorting their choices. What are the other regulatory pressures they're on? Is the CCPA diverting resources so they're not moderating effectively? I think the answer is yes. Um, do we have cybersecurity rules that are consistent with this goal of let's make the platforms be our partners in you know, giving us the best internet we can get? There's a lot of other places we can put the blame, but right now Section 230 is the easy target because it is the thing that's actually facilitating the internet, and we're a little bit frightened of the internet right now. And I think at times you see that in some of the rhetoric, particularly in a post-FOSTA-SESTA world. I'm going to get to that. Where, <laughs> um, could, with, could you explain so what FOSTA-SESTA FOSTA and SESTA were an additional carve-out to Section 230 that occurred a few years ago now that were aimed at targeting online sex trafficking. So as was mentioned previously, there is already a carve-out for federal crimes. This was an additional carve-out, particularly related to content that could be seen as facilitating sex trafficking in some ways. Um, a lot of this had to do around the conversation about a website called Backpage.com um, and a lot of concerns about that. Backpage.com was actually taken offline for other reasons under other laws before FOSTA-SESTA was signed into law. And there have been a lot of consequences beyond just concerns about sex trafficking as a result of this law. We saw Craigslist delete their personal section, for example. So this idea that a carve-out to Section 230 that's intended to address one bad thing won't have potential spillover effects on other legitimate speech, this is, this is an example of how we've seen some of those trade-offs playing out right now in real time as well. But what we've also seen as a result of that, if you watch any of the, the various congressional hearings on online content moderation, a lot of times you'll hear calls for a FOSTA-SESTA for insert whatever harm, a FOSTA-SESTA for opioids, a FOSTA-SESTA for child pornography, a FOSTA-SESTA for extremism or for illegal home rentals, um, any number of whatever someone's particular issue or what they perceive as the greatest harm of that day is. And so as a result, you in some cases are seeing calls for large-scale changes to Section 230, but you're also seeing a lot of calls for additional carve-outs related to these other areas, in part usually utilized to try and leverage certain behavior, it seems, out of the tech companies of, if you don't do this yourself, then we'll come in with this law like we did last time. Recently, we've seen a couple legislative attempts to change 230 by conditioning its intermediary liability protections on platforms having taken some set of steps in order to prevent abuse or uh, illegal misuse of, of their sites. Um, I think most prominently, we've had the Earn It Act um, released over the past couple weeks. Um, what does the panel think about the effect of these sorts of liability conditioning bills on how platforms might, might police um, abuse. Is it likely to change things for the better or? Well, I wanted to just drag forward one point from additionally from what you guys were just talking about and that's that, you know, frankly, when you have uh, platforms out there that are that operating under a philosophy of move fast and break stuff, sometimes they break stuff. And the result, it can be 
legislation because there's a demand for policy change. I mean, there are going to be situations, and I think FOSTA and SESTA is one of them, where uh, lawmakers are simply not willing to go forward with the status quo. And there may be unintended consequences, but I think we've already acknowledged, talking about the Herrick case and, and the arms race case, that there are unintended consequences of the current system. I don't think anyone's argued that those outcomes in those cases were intended when Congress passed 230. So we're dealing with unintended consequences in both directions. Now the question is, what happens if you impose a, a condition, new conditional system? And I think, you know, depends on well, how the system is set up, right? I mean, I think that, that certainly changing incentives changes behavior. Um, and so it depends on how that's directed and what the focus is. I mean, there's been talks about, um, you know, I know Danielle Citrone uh, has, and others have proposed, um, you know, a more direct uh, focus on content moderation. Uh, obviously, the Earn It Act focuses on, uh, on child pornography material, um, which is obviously an important issue and something that, that law enforcement are, has are largely are already addressing in other ways. Um, but and part of that federally not covered content. Yes. Um, um, but I, but I, yeah, I think it really the devil is going to be in the details with all of these proposals because it really depends on how are you changing incentives, what are the possible direct consequences and maybe side effects of those changes. Um, but I, I just don't think it's tenable anymore to say we can't change anything. Because even with the, you know, even in the FOSTA SESTA example, I mean, that was a change that that some have sort of laid out the unintended, maybe perhaps the unintended consequences of. Um, but as far as I know, the internet still functions, and there's a little bit of a fear of you know just comparing it to the conversation around net neutrality. There's a lot of uh, fo folks that now talk about on both sides really about the kind of big picture harms that were discussed in the debates over the policy to say, oh, if we don't adopt this rule that I'm advocating for, then big, this big bad thing will happen. And then time passes after one rule or another has been adopted and we look backwards and say, well, okay, there, are, yes, Craigslist removed the personal section, but the internet otherwise still functions. There's, it's an it's a, unintended consequence perhaps in one area but it, it isn't systematic, right? It isn't fundamental to the system. So I think, I think it will depend on the details. It will depend on exactly how these proposals are scoped, what the direct and unintended consequences would, would be. even Craigslist disabling even one section of its classified ads preemptively because they're afraid of how this uh, statute will impose liability on them, that is lawful speech that a government urging has now been driven from the internet. So, okay, we still have other lawful speech, but I don't think we can say the internet is working fine when lawful speech has been driven off of it. That doesn't seem like a harm we can tolerate, and the more that we carve out exemptions, the more of those harms we're inviting. Even just one bit of lawful speech wrongfully driven from the internet at, you know, essentially yielding to government pressure, I think is a huge constitutional problem. And I think that alone should cause us to say, hang on a second, time out, this may not be the way to go. Um, the fact that the rest is working, I don't think saves the fact that that was a, you know, that's a constitutional injury. And it was an injury. It's not a constitutional injury. There's no government actor in that example that is, that is directly regulating the speech. This is, goes to the point that was made on the earlier panel. It, it doesn't take about. the state actor that basically if, if you have the law that with state power you're creating the leverage. Um, also it did kind of, FOSTA does give state power because the, um, the states can prosecute people under FOSTA claims. Um, it's a mess but even like defamation law which is about private actors suing private actors, you get the state power because ultimately it's a state created lever that allows one of the, the state private actors to use upon the other one, and there you've got your constitutional problem. Um, and in this case, you know, it took down things. One of the plaintiffs challenging the constitutionality of FOSTA is somebody who, he was a, mas a massage therapist, and he made his living by advertising on Craigslist, and now he can't earn his living, he can't reach his clientele the way he used to because his lawful speech has been disabled based on um, Craigslist reacting to this state-created power. I think you've really, really summed up how, how these levers can be used again in unintended ways. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes left on this panel, so I'd like to throw it open to the audience to ask questions. Um, you can either tweet your questions um, using the Cato Technology hashtag if you're watching from afar, or uh, simply raise your hand if you're in the auditorium. 
Yes, right there, Adam. Uh, Adam Steer from the Data Center, George Mason. I was wondering if you can address uh, what is in many ways one of the great ironies of this space. Many of the people most vociferously advocating for greater forms of content moderation are the same ones who complain about the state of competition and the number of online platforms and uh, digital services. And it seems to me that like the more So for those online who couldn't hear Adam's remarks, he's asked about whether there's a tension between a diversity of content moderation approaches, as you might see in a, a freer market for platforms, and these demands that all of our, our uh, platforms assume similar moderation responsibilities in order to combat universally understood harms. I think that was one of the beauties of Section 230 is that it creates a relatively low barrier to entry to create a new service that can have whatever content moderation norms that you feel serves a market that maybe is being underserved by current content moderation norms. So if you feel that you know conservatives are being wrongly silenced by Facebook and you want to go create your own new social networking platform that you feel that raises up conservative speech, right now you don't have to worry about the, the liability issues associated with that user-generated content. In those cases, certain exceptions, la, 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 la. I was trained as a lawyer, so I have to say those things. <laughs> In a world without Section 230, there's the question of content moderation at scale. It's very expensive. You're going to have to employ a lot of content moderators. You're probably going to have to employ a lot of lawyers to handle the potential litigation cases. But if you're a large company, you may be able to build in those costs or to take those costs away from something else that's more innovative. If you're a small guy trying to get off the ground, the cost of even arguing the case through to a certain point, let alone if you lost the case, can be incredibly damaging and potentially um, bankrupting in an for the, the small company. Not to mention the question of, potential PR issues of if you're the company that decides you are going to push back against a claim that you don't feel a claim is grounded, how, how does that play out in the marketplace of ideas as well? Um, I want to throw out another case name, um, UMG versus Shelter Capital. That's not a Section 230 case. That was a DMCA case, one where the Ninth Circuit said, actually, video hosting service, you're not liable for the copyright infringement of your users. Um, and the reason the case is shelter capital is that was the funder of the company because the company, the video service itself had gone bankrupt in the process of finding out that it wasn't liable for the potential infringements of its users. When you don't protect the platforms, it is game ending. Um, we've seen it happen in the copyright space and that's why I was saying it's a cautionary tale of why we should not turn Section 230 into Swiss cheese. The idea is to align the incentives. 230 at its core was Congress wants the most good stuff and the least bad stuff and let's get the partners on board to be our partners in, achieve, in optimizing for both. So everything we do from a regulatory standpoint should be about preserving those incentives because every time we un do those incentives and scare the platforms into reacting in a way, they stop optimizing as effectively in either category. I mean, I don't think there's any question that if you lifted 230 immunity for even, you know, in certain slivers, or certainly if you, if you lifted it across the board, that the companies that would face the most immediate liability would be the biggest companies. I mean, Facebook, it's a scale and numbers game at some point, and the Facebooks and Googles um, and other large platforms of the world, I mean, unfortunately, Facebook owns most of them, so it's mostly Facebook, um, would face the biggest liability. And we have, the system we have right now is so heavily consolidated in that space was developed under 230. So I think the, the, the argument that somehow the competition problem gets worse 
when we remove 230, the competition problem, frankly, is already very bad. So I, I, under 230, I, I don't really see, and, and that the, again, I think Facebook would face the biggest liability if, to, if 230 uh, was lifted. I, I understand the problem faced by smaller platforms, but, but again, at scale, I think most of the litigation is attracted to the, to the biggest platforms with the biggest pockets. But Shelter Capital obliterated a competitor for YouTube. The point that, that we're making is that um, without the protection, you obliterate the competition. So all that we're, will ever be is Facebook because that's all that's going to be left standing. Um, all the smaller things of if we don't want to face, if we don't want every all of our videos to go to YouTube, it would have been really nice if we had this other service that we could choose. But we don't have that other service before because they got sued into oblivion uh, because they the protection wasn't effective for them. So if we want these choices and to not make sure it's just Facebook, we have to have this protection. And I'd also point out that Wikimedia is not Facebook. It's not commercial. It doesn't have the, the resources to be able to defend itself, but it exists at a scale that's akin to these larger platforms. What's their protection? And I don't think we can just say, well, let's make a Wikimedia carve out, because then that's it. That's the game. That's Wikimedia, and that's all we will ever get. Especially the more unhappy we are with the internet that we have today, the more we need to enable us to get a better one. And a lot of this regulatory reaction seems to be designed to bake in all the crap we've got and get us stuck there. I think we have time for just one more question. Well, I'll throw it to Matthew Early then. Um, a big thank you to all of our panelists. Um, done a great job, especially Jennifer popping in. Um, and now I'll introduce Matthew Feeney uh, to sum up the conference for the day. Thank you all. stay on stage if you don't want to. <laughs> but yes, uh, thank you. So I'm going to try and um, bring this in uh, on time and under budget. Uh, I just want to thank you all for, for coming today. Uh, I think this conference covered a lot of, uh, a lot of material and reinforced uh, certainly my view that Section 230 is likely to be in our policy radar for the foreseeable future. And I'm sure that today's conversations about bias, internet company governance, First Amendment law, and responses to extremism and other harms will uh, continue to inform future discussions. Uh, before I let you all go, I want to extend a thanks to the speakers at today's conference who flew in not only from across the country but from uh, across the world, uh, especially given the current global response to uh, the coronavirus situation. Uh, some thanks, I think, uh, special thanks is also due to Cato's event staff and interns who always play an instrumental role in ensuring that these events run smoothly. Uh, thanks to my colleagues, John Samples and Julian Sanchez, for moderating. Uh, thanks also to Will Duffield. Uh, you may not be able to tell, but today was actually Will's first public speaking engagement as a Cato employee. Uh, the last time, yeah, he gets a round of applause, right? Well done. Stuff. Uh, the last time Will was on the stage, he was representing libertarianism in our annual debate with the Heritage interns, and I think he uh, performed as admirably then as he did today. Uh, and. I suppose the final thanks I want to extend is thank you for coming. Uh, the authors of Section 230 were not able to make it today, but I uh, hope you'll all be able to join us when Senator Wyden and Mr. Cox uh, do come to Cato to discuss uh, the writing of the law that we've been discussing today. Uh, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, we've, we've canceled the reception, though I'm sure some speakers uh, will stick around to answer your questions. Uh, and with that, uh, I will relieve you. Thank you again for coming. Okay.